0: Hello. In 1978, a formula devised by Rudolf Flesch and J. Peter Kincaid was adopted by the United States Army for assessing the difficulty of reading technical manuals. The Flesch-Kincaid test has been used ever since to quantify the complexity of a text and indicate the demographic that should be able to assimilate it. Such a metric is useful in, say, the insurance industry, where, for obvious reasons, the provisions of an insurance certificate must be comprehensible to the insured, or in helping teachers to identify which books are suitable for which students. Nowadays, the tests are ubiquitous to the extent they come as standard with many popular computer word processing packages. All well and good, one might say. But, as an avid reader of the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, I'm confident I'm but one amongst millions of fellow devotees who do not require such technical wizardry to confirm the sheer reader-friendliness in the tales of his master detective, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. The texts of the 56 short stories and four novels are at once lucidly descriptive, yet elegantly efficient and to the point. Consider, for example, The Adventure of the Greek Interpreter, in which Holmes makes reference to his hitherto unrevealed elder brother Mycroft, whom he claims to be his intellectual superior. A puzzled Dr. Watson quizzes Holmes on this singularly startling revelation. The exchange between the two friends is as endearingly quixotic on Watson's part as it is emotionally detached on Holmes's. We take up the story with Watson, who writes... I put the question with a hint that it was my companion's modesty which made him acknowledge his brother as his superior. Holmes laughed at my suggestion. <laughs> my dear Watson, said he, I cannot agree with those who rank modesty amongst the virtues. To the logician, all things should be seen exactly as they are, and to underestimate one's self is as much a departure from truth as to exaggerate one's own powers. When I say, therefore, that Mycroft has better powers of observation than I, you may take it that I am speaking the exact and literal truth. Now that, by any yardstick, is straightforward stuff. And indeed am I minded of it, as I reflect on my school days, when, in my early teens and looking to identify my choices of studies for O-levels, I recall a parents' evening, as I sat with mine next to a piece of drawing paper under the critical gaze of my begowned master, Mr. Clements. Myers situation, was not at all helped by fellow pupil Stephen, a naturally gifted young artist if ever there was, who had composed a vista of a man sitting in a beachside palm tree and gazing on the sand below as horsehead waves came crashing in against the backdrop of a sun-drenched sky of powder blue. Glancing languorously from Stephen's effort to mine, a series of matchstick images throwing an ovaloid ball, I couldn't even draw a circle anywhere near, He turned to my parents and sighed. I don't think Graham's future lies in art. And that was that, as to my unbridled relief, I veered in the direction of the sciences. So, disavowing false modesty, when I say, therefore, that I had not a jot of artistic flair, you may take it that I am speaking the exact and literal truth. And yet, donkeys years later, and a long way down the line, I play a modest furrow as, of all things, a writer. Curious. But I reckon I can explain this by returning to the Greek interpreter and in a variation of the perpetual nature nurture conundrum where Watson queries Holmes as to whether his unique abilities may be hereditary. Mm, to some extent, he answered thoughtfully. My ancestors were country squires who appear to have led much the same life as is natural to their class. But, nonetheless, my turn that way is in my veins, and may have come with my grandmother, who was a sister of Vernet, the French artist. Art in the blood is liable to take the strangest forms. What? That last sentence again, please? Art in the blood is likely to take the strangest forms. Hmm... Despite the likes of the Fleshkin kate test, I am not persuaded that the art of writing is widely held as analogous with high science. Perhaps this is the strange form in which my own artistic interpretation manifests itself, and which only became evident long after my fruitless school days art classes. Thank you, Mr Holmes. Truth is, I relish the use of words and am fascinated by their roots and derivations. I'm also besotted by those anachronisms that are long out of favour and sadly relegated to the lesser thumbed recesses of the Oxford English Dictionary. I adore the oral sensation of rolling my tongue around the likes of grout, a nobleman's porridge, Gorgase, a medieval term for fashionable, or the sixteenth century pilled garlic infinitely more colourful than its mundane analogue of bald-headed. It's delicious stuff, and occasionally I bring one or two of these relics out of retirement to re-employ for my own pleasure. This is not for any reason of pretension, but more a personal act of rebellion against the contemporary trend for soulless spikes of monosyllabic texting or those frivolous emoticon symbols. Of course, I recognise that our language is constantly evolving, and I do not stand King Canute-like resisting its march. It's more the case of finding a certain comforting reinsurance in the robustness of the time served. My same argument applies equally to the spoken word, and especially to the robustious melange of expressionism that is our black country dialect. Here on the borders, I often find myself itching to wallow in my vernacular, but would do so secure in the knowledge that not a soul would understand me. Hence I am trying to learn Welsh, and have already mastered sufficient words to endear myself to the locals, who warm greatly towards someone who is at least giving it a go. But it is so very liberating to return to the black country, as oft I do, and break out in my native tongue amongst my fellows. Ah, yes. We have much to give thanks to for our rich lexicon that is revered throughout the English-speaking world, even the more so since, by a quirk of history, part of its collation has roots very close to home. Dr Samuel Johnson, 1709-1784, to contributed to English literature as a poet, essayist, moralist, literary critic, biographer and editor. He is the subject of one of the most celebrated biographies in English literature, The Life of Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. Born in Lichfield, Johnson attended Pembroke College, Oxford, for just over a year before his lack of funds forced him to leave. After working as a teacher, he moved to London, where he wrote for The Gentleman's magazine. But, crucial to his later attainments, at the age of 16, Johnson stayed with his cousins, the Fords at Pedmore, and briefly attended King Edward the VI school. He became close to Cornelius Ford, the son of his mother's brother, and Ford, an erudite man, gave Johnson extracurricular tuition in the classics. Johnson was later to acknowledge that the 18 months or so he spent in Stourbridge had an abiding influence on him throughout the rest of his life. He enjoyed his time with Ford, who encouraged him to become a man of letters. This Johnson did to outstanding effect. Johnson's most notable work was his famous A Dictionary of the English Language. Published in April 1755, this took him some nine years to complete. It is regarded as one of the greatest single achievements of scholarship of its time and had far-reaching effects on the English language that still resonate to this day. Thus did one of the greatest lexicographers the world has ever known for a time walk amongst us. And, for a time, Dr. Samuel Johnson was one away. Enjoy your black country, and do join me again soon for more Tales from the Barn.